You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast. Thank you for joining us on this Matt 28 Evening in Discipleship. All right. Thank you. Awesome. Um, okay. Well, I am really honored to be here with you guys tonight. And um, I, I normally am, am speaking to a, a large audience of students. And so when it's smaller like this, I was hoping that we could be a little more interactive. I, I knew it was a class. Um, and so in a classroom, things go a little bit differently. So I'm really hoping to uh, have some dialogue going on with you guys as we work our way through the case for life tonight. Um, I work with a ministry called Life Training Institute, and we are a pro-life apologetics organization. Uh, you guys are part of the, the golden few people in the world, I think, who know what the word apologetics means. Um, I, when I go into student audiences, I get like cross-eyed looks when I say I work with an apologetics ministry. Like, are you saying you're sorry for Christianity? And I'm like, nope, that's not why I'm here. And so just calm down. Um, so apologetics does come from the Greek word apologia. It just means to make a reasoned defense for something. So you're giving reasons for things. Christian apologetics, you're giving reasons for the truth claims of Christianity. Pro-life apologetics is where we're going to camp out tonight. So I'm giving reasons for the veracity or the truth of the pro-life view um, or why I think that the pro-life view is true. Um, so. Uh, normally in a student audience, that goes really well. When you set it up that way, when you're offering your reasons, it kind of calms things down a little bit. Um, they're going, oh, okay, so you're not here to like shove this down my throat or tell me. You're here to give me something to consider. Um, but because the reasons are so strong when it comes to pro-life apologetics, it's typically pretty challenging for students who um, disagree with me at the outset, uh, but non-threatening. So it ends up being a good day more often than not. Um, all right. So tonight what I wanted to do is take us through the pro-life view, um, I want to talk a little bit about uh, the, kind of the, the, the battlefield that's out there, as it were, and, and set us up for that so we kind of understand our posture in all of this. And then we're going to make a positive case for the pro-life view. We're going to talk about science. We're going to talk about philosophy. I'm going to throw a good bit at you, but I will also leave you with resources that you can go to after this. So if you are like, that was a fire hose, I don't really know what to do with all that, um, don't fear. You have it all at your fingertips and disposal. You can even go listen to an entire presentation from all five of our speaking team online, um, you know, at, during all the free time I'm sure you all have, which is none, right? Uh, so I'm looking at my audience and I'm going, yes, this audience will know what the film Gladiator is. Because most audiences I go into these days, they're like, they were born that year. That's terrifying because that's my favorite movie. Gladiator was made in 2000. So literally, like that's when they were born. Um, so I do want to talk. Let's start with that because that's going to give us the right mindset. First of all, because Gladiator, um, nothing to do with Russell Crowe, promise. Um, <laughs> but there is a scene in that movie that I think of often when I go out to do the work that I do. And it is the scene where Maximus enters the Roman Colosseum for the first time as a gladiator. So have you just, if you've seen the movie, raise your hand if you've seen it. If you haven't, then I can catch us up. All right. So for those who haven't, Maximus is our main character. He is a general in the Roman army at the beginning of the film. He is well-loved by his troops. He is well-loved by the emperor. In fact, he's so well-loved by the emperor, the emperor thinks of him as a son and wants to give him the Roman Empire. He wants him to inherit it and not his own biological son, who is a bit wayward, which is important to the story. So through a series of very unfortunate events, after the emperor dies, um, 
also unfortunate. Maximus finds himself enslaved by Rome. As a gladiator, he's forced to fight in the arena. Um, and so there's a scene in the film, as I said, when he is fighting in the Roman Colosseum for the first time with a group of other gladiators. And Ridley Scott really does a fabulous job in that scene because you're there with them as they're entering the Colosseum. And then the doors open and they walk out onto the sand. The whole, like, if you were in the theater and saw it, it was incredible. But everything is reverberating with, with just almost the air is vibrating because of the crowds. And they're overwhelmed by it. And we're there with them. So you can see they're kind of stumbling around and looking and, and taking it all in. These crowds are in just massive and loud and chanting um, because they're there in a society that thinks that some human beings don't matter as much as others to watch them die for entertainment purposes. So Maximus in that moment knows two very important things for our purposes. Number one, he has a very obvious battle that's right in front of him. Something is coming through the gates and he's going to have to defeat that something in order to live to fight another day. There is an immediate and obvious battle that's about to take place. But there is also a larger war going on. And that's something that's less obvious to us until the film continues a little bit more. He knows that he has to win those crowds. He knows that he has to understand them. He has to get into their mindset. He has to understand what drives them, what their desires are, what they want to see. Because if he wins the crowds, ultimately he might be able to win his own freedom. So there's the immediate battle and there's a larger war. We are on a playing field very much like that one. We are in the middle of a battle, and every conversation that we face throughout our day is a battle of sorts. We're told the weapons of our warfare are not weapons of the flesh, but they are divinely powerful to destroy strongholds. When Paul talks about that in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, I think he is talking about worldviews, ideas, the ways people understand the world to be. He goes on to say that we are to tear down arguments We are to tear down every lofty opinion raised up against the knowledge of God and to take every thought captive to obey Christ. I don't know how many thoughts you guys think in a day. I don't even think I count mine. And it depends directly on how much coffee I've had that day as to how many actual thoughts go through my head. I'm just being very real with you. Um, (laughs) But it's a lot. So every time we come up and we listen, we have these conversations or the news is on or our kid asks us a question, right? This is a battle of sorts, an immediate one. But there is always that larger war going on because in the culture we live in, there's a certain climate of ideas when it comes to the issues we face, when it comes to um, how people think and feel about Christianity, which we would say is ultimately, objectively true, the truest of true. So we've got to understand what that war is even as we do these battles. We're in the same situation as Maximus. You guys are all gladiators. Welcome to the arena, right? Um, Our culture is really struggling. And we all want to be like, I watched that movie and I'm like, yes, Jesus, come back now. I'm so ready to fight for you. Um, (laughs) Like he's already got it. He's like, like, I don't need you, Megan, but thanks anyway. Um, (laughs) But you're giving it right now. Keep going. Keep going. Um, Okay. Our culture is really struggling to uh, answer a couple of important questions, and those are what we want to camp out on mainly tonight. The first question deals with the nature of moral truth. Our culture is struggling to answer the question, is morality real? Is it something real that we can know, or is it something we make up? 
If you are a set foot on a university campus or you work on one or near one or on a high school campus, even on a middle school campus, you will run into the struggle that's taking place out there. It's up for grabs. The other question is related to that one, but it pertains to every individual because it deals with us as human beings. It's the question of human value. What is it that makes us valuable as human beings? What is the thing that gives you value? What is the thing that gives you rights that other people have to respect? And if someone wanted to take those rights from you, your most basic rights, what would you appeal to to say, you can't take my rights away from me? What is the thing that you would appeal to? We have to get the answers to these questions right. I love getting to talk about abortion and about the pro-life issue because When we get the answers to these questions right, these conversations lead to gospel conversations more than any other. We're living in a battlefield right now in our society where what it means to be human is under attack. We can talk a little bit more about that in Q&A. I think that's leading directly to a lot of the uh, moral issues that we're struggling with right now. But what it means to be human under attack. And guys, how in the world are we going to communicate the gospel to a world that doesn't know what it means to be human or valuable? This is really important. This is the battlefield we're on. So welcome. You're with me. You're going to be standing with me. Um, And I hope that what tonight will accomplish is to give you guys some tools so that you can do that really well. So moral truth, um, we need to understand, first of all, because I'm going to start there, and then we'll build our case for life. We've got to build a foundation first. We're going to talk about a moral issue. We need to talk about the reasoning that's out there when it comes to how people think about this issue and others like it. So moral truth... um, What's going on right now as far as the question over moral truth goes is that there is confusion over whether abortion, we'll camp out there, is a preference issue. In other words, I don't prefer abortion, I don't like abortion, um, or you know, I, I think it should be allowed because I'm okay with it. That kind of it's a feelings preference issue, or is it an objective type of issue? So we could use the words subjective. And objective. When I'm with students, I give them two examples of statements, and I ask them to define the difference between the two statements. One statement, an example would be, uh, chocolate ice cream is better than vanilla ice cream. That's one kind of statement. The other statement I'll give them to grapple with is, it is wrong to torture toddlers for fun. Now, that sounds crazy. Guys, I was doing a Mothers of Preschoolers group one time. I was speaking at one over, it's like moral relativism or something. They they wanted to hear about it. And so I came in and I gave that statement as an example. And a mom raised her hand, true story, and said, define torture. And I thought, like, we need, like, some coffee and a whole lot of Jesus. I don't really know what we need right now. But two different kinds of statements. So chocolate ice cream better than vanilla? It is wrong to torture toddlers for fun. A lot of students cannot tell me the difference in those types of statements. Like, well, they're both opinions. We live in a society that thinks that moral statements and religious ones and value ones, even like when we're dealing with beauty and things like that, are subjective kind of statements. So just to give you a couple of definitions to work with, subjective claims or subjective truths, rather, are truths that you create They are matters of personal preference, like choosing one flavor over another one. And because you create them, all subjective truths are equally valid. So when I talk about my favorite flavor of ice cream, other people aren't likely to get that offended unless they're just super serious about their ice cream, right? It's kind of like college football. Like That one is like a questionable one. But no, if I'm talking about my preference, people aren't going to get offended as easily, right? 
But if I start talking about other something else, like, no, I actually think I'm right about that, making moral claims, something happens to the conversation. So subjective truths look like this. You create them, personal preference, all equally valid. Objective statements would be the opposite of that. Objective statements or objective truths exist independently of the subject. If you think of the subject of a sentence, a subjective statement is about you, the subject. It's about you. Objective claims are not about you. Truths that are objective exist out here. They're true whether we prefer them or not. They're true whether we're even aware of them or not. They're truths that you discover rather than create. And for that reason, objective claims can be right or wrong by their very nature. They can be true or false. I could say that I think that the Empire State Building is located in Chicago. That would be an objective kind of claim. It would just happen to be a false one. Absolutely. So by their very nature, these claims are true or false. They can usually be verified. You can usually bring evidence to the table to discuss them. But it's a different kind of conversation. In our culture, moral conversations happen over here. There's a reason for that. Because we're on this battlefield of ideas, ideas have consequences. The consequences of the ideas that came from the Enlightenment and thinkers from that time period and those after it have resulted in a society that thinks that moral and religious and value claims are subjective. In other words, they don't really count as true knowledge. We can talk a little bit more about that later if you want to. Um, But it came from somewhere. That's where we are. So when you talk about abortion in particular, this gets confused all the time in our culture. For this issue in particular, people are sunk in over here. Like, no, this is a subjective issue. Think of the past couple of election cycles. Maybe don't because it was unpleasant. But um, <laughs> in, the, <laughs> in the debates, when abortion came up, every time it was talked about, the question was framed as if it is a subjective issue. I remember two um, uh, elections ago when uh, Joe Biden and Paul Ryan were debating, the, two, the vice presidential debate. And the moderator framed the question. I remember exactly what she said. She said, gentlemen, both of them were Catholic. So that was historic. She said, I want to know how your religion has impacted your own personal view on the issue of abortion. And gentlemen, remember, this is an emotional topic. You must speak personally. That's the national stage. Our country is dying to talk about abortion as if it is an ice cream type of issue, a preference issue. Have any of you ever heard the slogan, don't like abortion, don't have one? It's pretty popular. More so on the West Coast, it's out there. But the word like bothers me because it takes an objective type of claim and tries to twist it into a preference type of claim. It's not that kind of claim. This would be much more obvious to us if that statement said, as Francis Beckwith suggests, uh, oh, you don't like slavery, don't own one. That's a moral issue also. Oh, you don't like spousal abuse, then don't be your spouse. We know those are not matters of preference. We know human beings are not things to be bought and sold. But when it comes to abortion, we're not there yet. So we've got to try and achieve some clarity on this. Keep in mind that when you make moral claims, like abortion is wrong, and that's the claim I'll defend in just a second, you're not actually talking about yourself. Your statement isn't about you. It is, however, about the nature of reality. Your statement when you make it is about what the world is really like or not like. When I say Christianity is true, I'm not talking about my personal preference. In fact, I didn't become a Christian because it was my favorite. 
I became a Christian because I think it is true apart from me. It's the best explanation of the way the world really is. And in fact, as you're raising up kids and you're teaching students, the only reason they should ever believe in anything is if it's objectively true. Feelings-based things don't define a lot for us. And I'm not discounting feelings. They're very important. But there's more to it than that. So moral claims are objective in nature, but we live in a society that thinks they're not. That's the first kind of battle you've got to navigate in a lot of conversations or realize what's going on. This does a couple of things for you as far as your posture goes in conversing about particularly this issue, which tends to get pretty contentious, right? How many of you have ever tried to kind of defend the pro-life view and found yourself backed into a corner and somebody just beating you down like, with, with words because they're like, no, this is my truth. You're hearing this battle over the nature of truth. Um, all right. Um, this, so when, when you accept that it's an objective type of claim, what this does is take the heat off of you a little bit, first of all, because when someone attacks the pro-life view or any type of thing that's objective, Christianity, right? Christianity stands and falls apart from me. Thank goodness. Right? God's got it. It will fly in the marketplace of ideas. has wonderful reasons backing it, and he gives us that evidence. It's wonderful. Abortion being wrong will fly in the marketplace of ideas if we know how to defend it well. All right. The comfort in this is when someone attacks the view, you don't have to take it personally. Some of us, when, when, we, when somebody attacks something that we believe in that's, that's, that, that is important to us because we take it's mine. Right? We get to the point where we get really offended. We want to jump in on the defensive right away. But when we understand what kind of statement this is, when somebody comes and says, I'm totally pro-choice. I don't understand why you would want to wage war on women this way. It should be in your mind because of the nature of the claim as if they walked up to you and just said, I actually think two plus two is five. Now, if someone came up to me and said that, like, I don't know the alternative to two plus two is four. Do you? Like math just seems to work, right? Whether I love it or not, right? But I'm going to be really curious as to how they got how they got to that conclusion. Two plus two is like you're going to have to tell me how that's it's so interesting. Tell me how you got there, right? You're free to be curious and begin to ask good questions when you understand the nature of the kind of conversation we're having. It's also a humble stance to take. When we understand that this is an objective issue, we know that by their very nature, objective claims can be right or wrong. So when you claim to be right about abortion in saying, I think that it's actually wrong, and I think I'm right about that, okay, people hear you and think, man, that's really arrogant. You can't claim to be right in a culture like this one. But you're actually submitting to the person in front of you that you could be what? Wrong. You could be. Objective claims by their nature can be right or wrong. Don't worry. You have excellent reasons, or you will, to defend your view. But you could be. That's, that's a humble stance. That's the kind of stance that invites dialogue and makes us become better people because of it. If everything is subjective, what we would, in essence, be saying is, I think I'm right and I can't be wrong. Because that's the nature of subjective truths. Note that the, the, the culture, I think, is trying really hard not to be arrogant. That's worthy of noting. I think that the intentions are good. But if you can help someone see the way that sounds when you point out the nature of subjective claims and bring them over here, real conversations are not only possible, they go extremely well. 
in my experience anyway. So how do we get there? Well, we got to do three things on the abortion issue. The first thing we have to do is simplify it for people. And I don't mean that it is simple when I say that. So understand, there are many, many complex things that bump into the abortion issue that, that are extremely hard. It's emotionally complex. It's psychologically complex. Certainly politically complex. Economically complex. But morally speaking, it's very simple. The whole debate morally hinges on one question. And we have to learn to bring the conversation back to that question. If you can do that, you will frame the conversation that you'll have. And if you're a debater, you know he who frames the debate wins the debate, usually. So one question, simplifying the issue. We're going to bring the conversation back to that. Then we're going to answer the question, and we'll talk about why you matter. And that's where we'll land this tonight and open it up and have some real conversations here. Simplifying the issue. Um, I see that there are a lot of children in this church as there are a lot of children in my church. That's the sign of a wonderful, healthy church. So way to go, guys. Um, <laughs> yeah, so how many of you have uh, little boys? Yep, me too. Um, how many of you have been standing at your kitchen sink looking out the window washing dishes, unable to turn around because you had dish suds up to your elbow when your little boy came into the kitchen and said, Mom, can I kill this? Has that happened to you yet? Okay, well, maybe it will, maybe it won't. But um, so what do you think I said <laughs> in response? <laughs> I can't see him. I asked him, what is it? What are you holding, son? Because I will be very real with you. There's no telling. And if my son is holding an insect that stings, I will help him kill it. I don't do those. I'm terrified. It would be like sheer fight or flight. I'm going to fight. That's, that's it. If my son's holding the neighbor's dog, I'm only human. Okay, it barks all night. But we're going to put the dog back. Put the dog back. We're not going to harm the dog if my son is holding his sister. Like, we're in bad trouble. So, right, my husband is my pastor, so I don't know where we go at this point for help. Right? The answer to what is it actually matters. It matters. Can we kill the unborn? Sure. If the unborn are not human beings. If it is true that having an abortion is just like clipping a fingernail or pulling a tooth, I can retire. I shouldn't have an issue with it, and neither should you. But if the unborn are human, that's different. We have to answer the question, what is the unborn, before we can talk about whether or not we can kill them. That's the question at the center of the debate. What is the unborn? Most people skip that question. They give you reasons for why abortion should be allowed. They'll talk about things like... Um, I can give you a whole list of them. Women should have the right to personal private choice when it comes to abortion. Right? Uh, privacy is the, is the legal justification under the federal law, after all. Um, women should have the right to pursue their careers. They should have the right to pursue their dreams without an unplanned pregnancy standing in the way. This woman can't afford to feed another child. Why would you say she has to go through with the pregnancy? Abortion prevents disabled children from coming into the world who may live a poor quality of life. We wouldn't want them to suffer in that way. Abortion prevents unwanted children from being born. Why would you want someone to have a baby that nobody wants? If we were to impose laws against abortion, wouldn't that be imposing religion on other people? So the list keeps going and going and going and going. And the rhetoric is strong. And not only that, the things that these people are bringing up are important things. Privacy is important. Poverty is not something we take lightly. The ability to pursue education and have that access to that is important. 
But we have to learn to listen carefully because every single one of those reasons that I gave makes the same mistake. If I were to walk the youngest child in here up here right now, we would agree on a couple of things immediately. Number one, we would all be like, this child is very well behaved because I don't hear any of them. If my kid came in here, you'd be like, he's crazy. And we could all agree on that. But we would all also agree that this child is unquestionably human. Human. Imagine that I were to read that same list back to you. Privacy, pursue education and dreams, pursue career, disabled, unwanted, expensive. And then tell you that I ought to have the right to kill this child for those reasons. You think I had lost my mind. You would send me home packing because we don't kill young human beings or let's say five-year-olds. That's what mine is. Five-year-old human beings for any of those reasons. And as I tell teenagers all the time, thankfully, we don't kill you when you get expensive either because they are, right? It is no more religious to say that my son has value and a right to life than to say that he doesn't. It's not about those things. It's about what is the unborn. You can help people understand this. The next time that you hear someone give you a reason for why abortion should be okay, ask yourself, would this be a good enough reason to take the life of a toddler? If the answer is no, you can know that they have skipped that question. They're doing what's in debate called begging that question because they're already assuming that the unborn is not human. Let's take poverty for an example. I hear that one pretty often, and I don't take poverty lightly. We shouldn't. It's a serious issue. But let's say that someone comes to you and they say, this woman can't afford to feed another child. She can't afford to feed the children she already has. Who do you think you are to tell her that she has to go through with this pregnancy and give birth? Don't get mad. Hold your hand out about waist high. And say, for the sake of conversation, let's just say I have a three-year-old standing next to me and her parents can't afford to feed the kids that they have. Like they're struggling to eat themselves. So the family has reached an agreement. They're going to kill their toddler to take away the financial burden. Do you think they should have that right? What's that person going to say to you? No, you're nuts. They're going to look at you like you're insane. Just be warned. Ask them, why not? They will say something like, that toddler is human. That toddler is a person. They may even say that is completely different. No matter what they say, you're back to your question. Is it different? I want to know, is the unborn human like the toddler is human? Let's talk about that. Then we can talk about poverty. Or we can talk about how to help this particular person. But you've brought about, we call that trot out the toddler. You can always use a toddler as an example. Just hold your hand out waist high. Take him through that. Get back to your question, what is the unborn? No matter what. And keep your eye on the ball, by the way, because people will just throw another one at you. But what about privacy? I mean, people should have a right to privacy, right? Let's just say for the sake of conversation that that my next-door neighbor wants the right to beat her four-year-old in the privacy of her bedroom at home. Do you think she should have that right? No, you're crazy. Why not? Well, a four-year-old's a person. That's completely different than what you're talking about. Oh, is it different? I want to know, is the unborn human like that four-year-old is human? Let's talk about that. Then we can talk about privacy. What is the unborn? Bring it back every single time to what is the unborn. Once we're there, you've got to answer the question. But it's not a religious question. Oftentimes, if you're making a case for the pro-life view, if you even say you're pro-life, you're going to be pegged right away. Happens to me all the time. Airplanes, 
line at Starbucks, whatever, that they'll turn to me and say, oh, I get it. You must be a religious person. Like that, but I didn't ask a religious question. What is the unborn? I don't go to my Bible for the answer to that question. It's a scientific question. I go to science, particularly biology, the science of life, but even more particularly than that is embryology, the study of embryos. There's a whole branch of science dedicated to this. And what it tells us without question is that from the very beginning at conception, in fact, Dr. Maureen Kondik would tell you within 210 milliseconds, when sperm meets egg, those plasma membranes begin to merge. That egg cell changes in its material composition, the stuff that it's made up of. Biologically speaking, you have a brand new cell, a human being, that can now live upwards of 100 years or more, given medical technology. From the very beginning, the unborn is a living, distinct, whole human being. Living, distinct, whole human being. It's alive. It fits the definition of an organism. If you have a seventh grader in your house, ask them the definition of an organism. They'll tell you. They'll give you a big long list and you'll, you'll know the unborn fits all of those. It grows. It turns food into energy, responds to stimuli, right? Does all those things. The unborn is distinct. It's a separate entity from its mother. It is not part of the woman's body. Not like my arm is a part of my body. It is attached to her, but it is not part of her. It has its own unique genetic code that is different from its mother's and its father's. And the unborn is whole. This is where I get my whiteboard out because we've got to make some distinctions here. Like note taking is like my spiritual gift. So if you're a note taker, I get it. All right. The unborn is whole. So we've got a couple of categories under whole. Parts versus wholes. What we know about the unborn is that it is not part of a larger human being. It is a whole entity in and of itself. Unlike my skin cells. Now, I could scratch my hand and send all, like, several hundred of these cells to the floor. It's pretty gross. Sorry for whoever has to vacuum this later. Um, a lot of those were dead because they're on my epidermis. Some of them are still alive right now. They all contain my DNA coding. But I did not just commit mass murder. It's all right. Those cells are part of me. And their job is to contribute to the overall function of the organism. That is me. An embryo is not like those cells. It's not like a sperm or an egg cell, which are also part of a larger organism. Its parts contribute to its function even at that single-celled stage. And it goes on to do something that is remarkable. So here's where we get to this one. Let's see. Parts versus holes. And we have... Can you guys read my handwriting? That's an N. Properties versus substances. Properties versus substances. So these are related, okay? It's not part of a larger organism, nor is it a sum of its parts. It's not like my car. Now, my car, my husband and his brother are like stunt drivers. They're crazy people, and they like things that go fast, right? But my car... Uh, goes fast, and it was put together on an assembly line somewhere. It is nothing more than a sum of its parts, and actually, it's not the same car that it used to be because Tripp and Christopher have messed with it enough and changed around enough parts on it. It's a whole different car than the one that it used to be. A car is a properties kind of thing. It's just a bunch of properties, a bunch of stuff put together. Our culture would love for you to think of yourself this way. We know that it thinks of the unborn this way because it says things like it's just a clump of cells. It's just a mass of tissue. 
as if you could add some more parts and the end process would give you a baby, right? Think of how we've gone from saying procreation. Now we say reproduction. Ideas really do have consequences. That's how we think of them sometimes. But we are not property kinds of things. We are substance kinds of things. Substance kinds of things come into being all at once, and they drive their own development, and they maintain their identity through time and through change. That's the kind of thing that you are. You're not just your body. You're not just the sum of your parts. We know that because if you were to be in an accident, God forbid, this is just a hypothetical, right? But if you were to be in an accident and lose a limb, your friends would not be coming to visit three-fourths of you. They'd be coming to visit you. Because there's more to you than just your body, right? We are substance kinds of things. And the last distinction we can make thanks to this is that we are not constructed like my car. We do something different. The unborn develops itself from within. You developed yourself from within. You didn't come from an embryo. You once were an embryo. And everything that makes you you was already there at that stage of your development. Many of us are still developing. Teenagers I speak to will not have fully developed brains until they're around 25 years old. That's just neuroscience. They are shocked to find out their parents really are smarter than they are. Like, your brain's not done yet, buddy. It's crazy. But We develop. Richard Stith gives us a wonderful illustration that I'll leave you with as far as this goes. There is this ancient thing that many teenagers are not uh, familiar with um, called a camera. And um, (laughs) it's not on your phone. It used to not be. Like you used to have film and you take it and you do. You guys know that process, right? You get it back and they're all overexposed, whatever. Picture a Polaroid camera. They're coming back into style. How many of you got your kids one for Christmas? Like the Polaroid that spits the image out? Not if you know what I'm talking about. Okay, amen. Um, (laughs) Richard Stith, a philosopher, says, imagine that you have one of those and you're taking pictures in the jungle and you go to snap a photo of the scenery that's in front of you and a black jaguar leaps out across the path and you've got the image. You've got it. And so you go and you, and you're, you pull that tab out and you're waiting to see your photograph. Now, black jaguars are notoriously um, rare because they're, they're just hard to find in the wild. There are not a lot of them, so they're very hard to photograph. So what you're holding is something of value. And you're waiting. They require, what, like 90 seconds? He says, imagine someone comes over your shoulder and looks over your shoulder about 10 seconds into that process, and they take that tab from you and rip it in two and toss it aside. Now, you would be very upset with them. But imagine they looked at you and they said, what's the big deal? It was just a brown smudge. You'd say, no, it wasn't. I was holding a photograph. It was rare. It was valuable. It was already there. You just couldn't see it yet because it was doing what? Developing. It was developing. That's a whole lot of science. And it keeps going. And it's wonderful. Discover new things all the time. The spark when conception takes place, it was recently discovered. There have been articles written about that. You can look up. The process of development is absolutely incredible. But that's what science has to tell us. Now, we have one more hurdle to cross in a culture like ours. Because if someone that you're speaking to is educated enough, they will say to you, I know that it's human. 
but it's not a person. They're making a distinction between human beings and persons. How many of you are familiar with the children's book, You Are Special, that Max Lucado wrote? I know you are now. <laughs> yeah, that book, the whole book is based on an idea. Punchinello, the main character, lives in a society where some of his kind don't matter as much as others. And they watch each other all day, and the ones who do really great things get gold star stickers, and the ones who aren't as talented like Punchinello get gray dots. And so visibly they're judged by their society according to their function. Some human beings don't matter as much as others. That's the society we live in. So when people make a distinction between human beings and persons, they're saying that. There are some humans that are merely human, but there are other humans valuable enough to be counted as persons with rights. So our question is, what is it that makes them that valuable? What is it that makes a mere human into a valuable person? This is philosophy. There are only two kinds of answers we can give to this question. It might be that you're valuable like an instrument. So we have instrumental value. I need like handwriting lessons. Or it may be that you're valuable in light of the kind of thing you are. The really simple answer is intrinsic value. Two I words, pretty easy to remember. Instrumental, intrinsic. Instruments are used for a purpose. They play in a certain way. So these answers are going to deal with traits and attributes and abilities, functions. Intrinsic value says you're valuable just because you're human. It's so simple, most people overlook that one. There are many real-world examples we could give of instrumental value. People like Dr. Peter Singer, a bioethicist at Princeton University, brilliant guy, right? doesn't share the worldview that most people in the room share, um, but he would say that you're not a valuable person until you are sentient, and by that he means self-aware, roughly. He says that's what gives you value, self-awareness. David Boonin, he would say that you're not valuable until you have, and listen, <laughs> see if I can even wrap my head around this, the right amount of organized cortical brain activity that would enable you to minimally be able to desire because he believes your rights are grounded in your desires. Function. Consciousness. Right? All kinds of answers. They sound really sophisticated. But Stephen Schwartz tells us that the intrinsic view is the only one that really makes sense because it's the one that says that there is no morally relevant difference between the embryo you once were and the adult you are today. Not a difference that would make it okay to have killed you back then, but not now. And there are only four areas of difference that he points out between embryos and us. Four categories. They're all instrumental. Size. Level of development. Environment, degree of dependency, easy acronym, SLED. If you can remember that acronym, you can remember these. Size, the unborn are tiny, therefore some would say they're insignificant. But does size determine your value as a human being? Guys, around this room, that would create an obvious problem. If we played a game called Let's All Stand Up, right, ladies, we probably would lose. Some guy in the room is going to be the biggest guy in the room. He's going to win the day. See, size is something that comes in degrees. So if we say that size is what determines our value and tiny human beings don't matter, we create a value spectrum. And on that spectrum, logically speaking, smaller human beings are less valuable than larger ones. Some human beings matter more than others. Our kids don't stand a chance in a world like this. If size is what determines our value. Level of development 
The unborn are less developed. That's true. But there are children in the room who don't have fully working reproductive systems yet. They haven't developed those. They can't be killed for that reason. But if we're going to grant that for the unborn, we've got to be consistent. We create value spectrums when we say level of development is what grants you value or what grants you rights. Every sophisticated answer I gave a second ago, consciousness, organized cortical brain activity, self-awareness, are level of development arguments. Environments where you're located, the unborn are inside, we're outside. That's a difference of less than 10 inches. But that much difference. If that's what it takes to bring a non-valuable human into valuable humanity, by the same reasoning, we can say that's what it takes to take you out. And degree of dependency, the unborn are dependent on their moms for survival. Yes, they are. But my mom being diabetic is dependent on her medication to survive. And without it, her body will not process sugar like it's supposed to, and she will not survive long. She has to have it. I can't kill my mom because she's dependent on something. But if we're going to grant that for the unborn, we have to be consistent. Logic demands consistency. And what we find is the only answer philosophically that makes sense is that we are intrinsically valuable. Guys, that means that you count. You have value and worth and rights just because you are human. You share a common human nature with every other human being from the point they come into existence to the time that they die a natural death and if Christianity is objectively true, I think it is, long after that, being human is what makes you count. That's page one of the scripture that says that you bear the image of God. As human beings, we are image bearers. That was endowed to us by God. He gave us that. We didn't earn it. We can't give it away. And no one can take it from us. That's really good news. In a world that counts your value as something that is functional. And guys, that, that, that lie that some human beings matter more than others, it manifests itself in a million and one ways just throughout your day. That war on ideas, the battles that you face, every advertisement that's ever been made is to tell you that if you buy this product, you will be better because of it. That's just a manifestation of that. But so was ancient Rome, where Maximus was in the arena. Some human beings don't matter as much as others. Deadly idea. With abortion, the idea that some human beings don't matter as much as others. 3,000 human deaths every business day. That's only the count in America. Not a worldwide number. It can come in subtle little ways, too. From how you wake up and think of yourself when we compare ourselves to others and we succumb to that temptation. Our students do. I know that. To how we treat our neighbors. All of those different things back to understanding your worth as an intrinsically valuable human being. Philosophy backed up scripture. And everything I get said tonight is embedded in the Christian worldview, which is wonderful. So I'm just going to stop there for, for as far as the case for life goes. I hope that those words are encouraging to you. Um, Because I will tell you this, to the degree that you can understand and adopt that in your own life and walk in it to understand who you are and why you matter, philosophically, yes, intellectually, yes, but through the words that God gives us, both God the Word on paper and God the Word on wood, as Peter Kraft would say, um, 
you become very dangerous to a world like this one in a good way. So um, let's, let's take the rest of this time. You guys feel free to just ask questions. I know that's a very rough transition, Um, but I'd love, I'd love to try and I'll just say, I'll try. If you start asking me science questions, I'm going to punt to Yvonne. Okay. (laughs) I'm kidding. Neonatal questions. Go to her. (laughs) Thoughts on anything? Yes. Um, Since you're out there and you hear um, a lot of the information, uh, official information, do you think that we'll ever get to the point where we look back like we do on slavery? (coughs) And we'll look back on abortion as I can't believe we were doing that. I can't Mm. believe we talked ourselves into thinking that that was okay as a society. Um, I'm an optimist, so I can say I hope that we will. Um, I don't know if it will happen in my lifetime, but I pray that it will. That's why I do what I do. Um, as far as what I see from students, from the young people that I work with, I work with high school and college students around the nation when I go and speak, um, and what I hear from them, um, the ones who become convinced that the pro-life view is objectively true, I think that number is growing. Uh, A lot of them are still overcoming the hurdle of moral relativism of, well, yeah, sure, I'm personally pro-life, but I can't tell other people what's right and wrong for them. That's what, that's probably the biggest roadblock I run into on campuses. Um, I think that number is growing. Positive trends I see is that students are demanding answers. I love that they're asking questions. I love that they haven't accepted that they have the answer. Because most often when you have a young person come to you um, and uh, with, with problems, it's because not so much, uh, my friend Jeff Myers would say, not so much that they have unanswered questions, they have unquestioned answers, right? These students are, are not settled yet, some of them. They're, but they want answers. So they're not afraid to ask and, and even be like very straightforward about it. <laughs> I'm okay with that. Um, I see a great amount of compassion from from the next generation that's coming up. I'm only speaking to that because that's who I work with most often. Um, and that I say that in part because of what they have access to. Students right now, because of smartphone technology, have access to seeing the injustice, not just like in their neighborhood, but on a worldwide scale. These students want to solve world problems. So it's really incredible the things you hear them say, like, I want to solve the problem of water in Africa. And then they're going to come up with a way to do that. That's very positive, and we should be positive about that. So when they have that much um, access, and that's a different conversation, for good or for not, right? Because there are certain temptations that come with that. They're not so good. Uh, there's a great amount of compassion these students feel for the suffering of other human beings. So the more that they can understand who's included in the human family, I think the more that compassion will be turned in the right direction. So my prayer is that God just gets a hold of all of them and moves them in that direction. Um, One of the goals I have when I speak to them is to help them see that because one of the undergirding questions is some human beings matter more than others, who counts as human, right? When I can make that connection or help them more make the connection that that speaks not just to abortion, which I think is the watershed issue, right? But to sex trafficking, which Hollywood has championed, with good reason, it should be ended, right, Um, to women's rights around the world, and um, not just here, Um, to slavery, which is uh, sex trafficking is another form of that, Um, to all these different issues. They already are on their radar. 
if they can see that they're connected and that abortion takes that to a whole other level of it's a holocaust unlike we've ever seen before if i'm right about it right um that turns something on in their heads so all that to say i'm hopeful but i don't know of course we'll eventually get there um but i might not be around to to see it that doesn't deter me <laughs> yes yvonne and then so as a um, almost women's health care professional, um, I encounter um, a lot of times people making the case for, well, if, we, if abortion becomes illegal in our country or worldwide or whatever, then we're opening the doors again for women seeking that option. Um, in dark, dirty back rooms, and that causing infection and yeah. bleeding and death, and all the complications that come with procedures such as procedures yeah. Yeah. as abortion, that um, because they're done illegally and in dark and dirty rooms rather than in clean and sanitary operating rooms. How, as a Christian mm-hmm. women's health practitioner, can I? overcome that yeah in an um, argument hmm. i've heard i've heard the argument um try first of all <laughs> just just like i know you would probably jump right to this because i i it's the compassion that's coming from a place of seeing this could cause severe pain and suffering um so my first response if someone asked me that or said that to me would be anyone who is harmed because of abortion is not okay. Anyone, unborn babies or women. Um, so that'd be the first thing I'd say. Um, but some of the, the argument that's still around with in terms of that actually comes from a faulty information from that time period. There were certainly abortions done like the ones you're describing, but they were not anywhere. And I, by anywhere, I mean like tens of thousands less than the numbers that were projected. Most abortions prior to Roe versus Wade were done by physicians in good standing in their community, just secretly. Um, so it, it wasn't that it was altogether unsafe. Um, so I, I'd say I just encourage: do your research on on some of the real numbers there. If it becomes a numbers battle, I don't think that's where somebody would really be coming from. But but that's important to point out. Um, the next thing I'd say is abortion. We want to make abortion safer for whom? Right? Are, are we, I get that, that you want to make it safe for women, but what about the unborn human beings? It's certainly not safe for them. I mean, they're dying in droves because of abortion. So it's a question-begging assumption, like the one, just like the ones from before. It assumes that the unborn are not human and valuable. Um, it also kind of takes a view of women that, that bothers me. On some level, um, it on one hand, it seems to indicate that women just have no choice, right? and, and 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 aren't intelligent enough on some level to to make a better decision than that, right? This is their only option. This is their only like no, it's not. That's not their only option. And furthermore, what kind of society drives women to that point where they're considering that? I'm not belittling like the the fear. Um, there are many people here who've probably worked as volunteers in pregnancy resource centers 
And what I understand is that when women come through the door of a pregnancy resource center with an unplanned pregnancy, most of the time they're just really scared. And the thing that they makes them seek the abortion most often than not is thinking, believing the lie that they have no support system. Um, so I think it could spur a conversation about you know, what kind of society do we live in where that becomes the only option? Why is that there? Um, but as far as the apologetic goes, stick, stick to this being a question-begging assumption. If we've made the case that the unborn or human are valuable, I'm okay with laws that make it harder to kill innocent human beings. Um, so the, the, the argument that I hear the most mm -hmm. from my college campus and high school previously was, yes, I agree that it's a human, but what about women who has been raped? Yeah, yeah. Um, the, you know, I, I've even had somebody say, yeah, I agree. Like, me and you agree on that, but I can't be pro-life because... Yeah. Um, I, yeah, that's that. I think we can all begin by saying just the word rape hits us in a certain way. Um, it's like a gut punch just to hear it. It's so it, it, it's mm. I've never been the victim of a rape. I don't want to be. Um, so I. To say that I would respond and say something like, oh, that must be really hard, is kind of silly. I have no idea um, what that's like. Now, I do have an extremely high view of human beings. So I think that as far as how I would answer someone who, who came to me with that, I'd first want to address the emotional side of it because I want to meet them there. Because more often than not, that's where the objection is. But if you can bring them to the place of seeing that human beings are, are so incredible that even in the most impossible of circumstances, seemingly impossible, we can still know what is right and choose accordingly. So knowing that, that the person asking me and I probably feel very much the same way about assault being disgusting and deplorable. The fact that we live in a world so broken that it even exists makes me so angry. Um, we can still look at it and say, what if I had a three-year-old who was conceived that way? And let's say for the sake of argument that every day he reminds his mom of how horrible that experience was. Could she kill her toddler? Would it make her feel better if she did? See, I think the lie that's tended to be believed out there, and I, and I run into this a lot, is that somehow people think that when a woman is raped, if she conceives from it, which is rare, but it does, it does happen, that somehow having the abortion will undo what was done to her. That's the lie. You can't undo that. An abortion won't undo it. Um, so I'll leave you... Uh, I'll leave you with Christopher Kayser, one of my favorite ethicists, and I read his book on, on the ethics of abortion. I'd recommend it. If it's, a, uh, it's a kind of a meaty read, but I, it's so good. But one thing he said just stuck out to me, and I've not forgotten it since. He was talking about this very issue, and he said that there are some times in, in a world like ours that's this messed up, basically, um, where human beings find themselves in situations where the option that is merely... Uh, okay to choose, like the morally acceptable option is taken from them. 
In other words, it's not fair. All they have left to choose between in scenarios like that, this being one of those scenarios, is that which is impermissible and that which is heroic. That's it. So technically... Can you also use the argument of the um, physical and mental damage that an abortion does to a woman? So she's already been injured once. Why injure her further for life where she's going to always have this burden upon her? And like you say, then go to the heroic side of she's been wounded. Does that give her the right to now wound someone else where, in fact, it may turn out to be a blessing in disguise in years to come? You know? Mm -hmm. I think that would be wonderfully encouraging. Um, I mean, it, on the one hand, yes, because there, there's evidence to show that that's the case. Um, I definitely agree with you that choosing life in those scenarios flies in the face of what was done to her. Um, so I think that that's appealing. Um, I will say just, just I'd have to give more than that only because even if abortion didn't harm her in any way, it would still be wrong because it takes the life of an innocent human being. Um, but certainly that weighs in. Is the numbers supportive of the cases? Because they're like, well, you know, um, you know, what about these women? I'm like, I'm thinking about a large group of people. But is the number supportive of those cases? So rape equals abortion. Not always. Um, rape accounts for less than 1% of the abortions performed in our nation. So in the area of politics, I know a lot of Christians turned off by politics um, and then are very uneducated when election time comes around. Um, and I've talked with some Christians who are heavily into the political scene mm -hmm. that would describe themselves as pro-life, um, but have kind of argued against me that it's possible to overvalue that issue when you're comparing candidates, that it shouldn't be the only issue that a Christian looks at and that it could potentially be overvalued. Have you ever had an experience where you personally, you're kind of looking at an election, you're looking at candidates that you could ever fathom saying, okay, this one's not pro-life, this one is, but because of where this one stands on a different issue, I would be comfortable voting in that direction versus... The one who's probably, or, or is it simple? Is it is as simple as a Christian looking at it and saying, "Show me the ones that are pro-life." Check, 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 check. Like that's the most important issue for a Christian when looking at it from a political standpoint. Uh, let's see. Definitely not a political scientist. So, um, <laughs> I think, Adam, I think being educated to the degree you can be is important. First of all. Um, this is a battlefield. I think that sometimes I have to look at it as strategy. I want, I want the person in office who's going to help with the pro-life issue because I do think it's the most important moral issue of our time. I can say that. Um, so I, I don't know how to, like, it is a priority for me. I guess the I argument that has been made is that this person's not going to have any ability to affect that issue. Gotcha. So, gotcha. so okay, he's pro-life, but uh -huh. he's not going to do anything about his belief on pro-life. Whereas I've kind of returned with my argument being, yeah, but it's a reflection of his worldview right. overall. Right. So well, it's going to, people. if he's filtering everything through that worldview, it's going to shape 
how he does a lot of other things that I'm probably going to agree with mm -hmm. because of that that just understanding that okay we're sharing a similar worldview here maybe you're not as you know the mayor of my city going to have any effect on uh, abortion is. but knowing that you're pro-life gives me a lot of confidence in other areas of your worldview no, for sure. I I would agree with you there um, because that, yeah, it's going to be, it's going to determine how any, any injustice that he's voting in or having sway on or voicing is going to matter. Um, no, I think I'd go with, go with you on, on that. Um, I, when I looked at the last election, I had to look at, it was, there was so much going on. Um, I hate to make it about parties because it's like, was Jesus a Democrat or Republican? Like, nope. Um, <laughs> but Given the way things were and looking for seats in different places, it, it did turn out to be. I mean, it was divisive, even amongst Christians. Um, I, I, that's a hard one for me. I mean, honestly, Scott's a better person to ask about a lot of that because that's who I go to <laughs> to ask those questions. Um, I ended up voting pro-life. Um, and so for me, that was it. Scott is very strategic in the way he looks at it, but he's also better informed than me, which is why I go to him. That's my boss. He formed Life Training Institute. Um, so for those kind of questions, I'd have to punt to him. I just don't, you'd have to give me a particular yes. like a, a scenario. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? I just want to know if you automatically were like, oh yeah, you can overvalue it. Cause in my mind, I don't think you can. Overvalue no. It. Yeah. yeah. I, I'm with you on that. That's what I was I agree with you. Yeah. yeah. Um, do you think that like as like parents or anybody that has a child, uh, speaks very loosely just on like, it's hard to raise a child, right? Do you think that has an effect on just. Um, a woman that like is trying to make the decision based off like, oh, well, I still have dreams left, and I'm so I can't have you right now. How much of that do you think affects um, that decision? Well, I don't know how much affects that decision, but I do think it affects the decision. Um, it's incredibly difficult uh, raising children, but at the same time, um, I think this comes back to how how our culture looks at what it means to be human and therefore looks at children, children lose when we, when we have a view of human beings that's skewed and broken. Um, and right now our culture is in a place where it, it, it what I'm seeing is it, it's, it, it's almost like going back to the first century, which Christianity already defeated this, right? Gnosticism was the first century view that said that the, the matter in the world, like stuff, just doesn't matter all that much. And what we really need to uh, try and, and attain is the spiritual type of being. We have almost like a twisted stepchild of that now. Um, you can look at people like Nancy Piercy or Robert P. George up at Princeton if you want to know more about this. Um, the view of personhood is called body self-dualism, um, mind-body dualism, uh, ghost in the machine. These are different terms you put on it, but that's what I see more often than not in our culture. And it's the view that the true self, like what makes me me, is not really my body and soul, like what Christianity would say, has said all along. Um, but it's my feelings base. It's my psyche, right? And my body is more or less a, a machine that serves the, me. And so I can do to and with my body whatever I want as long as I, the true me, is satisfied. Um, this drives, I think, the sexual revolution, certainly, and, and what's come from it. Um, but in all of that, that kind of view, kids lose because even that view of them to say, well, this is going to be an inconvenience. It's like you're thinking about buying a refrigerator or something. You know what I mean? It's like they become commodities. 
that we can like overlook or not. Children are gifts. Um, and, and so our culture's lost sight of that in a big way. So yes, I think that does drive it, but I think that's what's driving that, um, is kind of a loss of, of, of understanding what it means to be human and more and valuable and that the unborn are and that babies are and that toddlers are, they're just, they're just really small, immature uses. <laughs> um, yeah, I live with them, so. <laughs> but yeah. So I, I don't know if that even answered your question, um, but I think that's where it's coming from a little bit. Yeah. And if kids are commodities, then they're, they're disposable. Yes. Um, so earlier you had mentioned um, one of the arguments being children that are going to have developmental or um, other disabilities that they know about. Mm-hmm. Um, when the issue becomes almost more about euthanasia, to say that this child is going to suffer inevitably, there's going to be problems, what, what do you go to in that moment, and what do you speak to there? Um, the same arguments. <laughs> uh, euthanasia is is coming from the same kind of thing. So if the you know when when this view taken to the end of life that I just described, this ghost in the machine is when. Um, one of our loved ones is near the end and on a respirator and there's not much keeping them alive there. Um, they're unconscious. In other words, uh, what we will hear this view come out and well, he or she's not really there. Um, and that's not what Christianity teaches at all. Body and soul, inseparable. What you do to and with the body affects the person because it's fundamentally a part of who you are. Um, so I think euthanasia is wrong based on those reasons. Um, I also think that even though it's probably well-intended as a, as a means to ease suffering, I get, again, the compassion, it can't be discounted. Everyone at the table at these discussions cares about someone, right? So it's not coming from a just, Oh, I'm, I'm just evil. (laughs) We all are, but we, you know, not everybody knows it. Um, at the end of <laughs> just that's just Christianity. At the end of, of, of life, when it comes to something like that, um, though well intended, I think it's extremely selfish to be the person to say this person's life is not worth living. And when people say that's playing God, I think that's what they're getting at. Yeah. Yes, sir. The way that I've heard you present the case for a life um, tonight, the main it seems to me that the main emphasis is on both philosophy and science, mm-hmm. which you've you've presented as being objectively true and not just subjective to our experience. Um, but I think as a Christian, the way that we look at the Bible, um, we also think that that presents objective truth as well. Um, do you ever and, and I'll. I don't want to assume this, but I think that you would you would probably agree that you could make a pro-life case from the Bible as well that's consistent with that. Um, so do you ever, you know, if you're trying to con- confront somebody's thoughts on this that's different from our own, you're, con- you're confronting them with objective truth um, from one, one side or the other. Um, do you have just a typical, do you always present it this way or... Or how do you think about the strategy of bringing the Bible into it versus bringing in the scientific arguments? Is it just 
is it easier to do it this way because these are more commonly accepted with people that you're talking with? Or? That's, that's the reason. So when we do, I'm doing evidential apologetics, which is apolog- uh, the type of the branch of apologetics that would appeal to the, the world around us, right? General revelation and bring it back to the scriptures. Um, so it is a little bit of a backwards approach. Um, I present it this way in Christian environments uh, because oftentimes um, the Bible is what we go to to make the case. But when we make the case to someone who rejects the Bible, this is the better door to come in. And like I said, these conversations lead back to the scriptures and to the gospel more than any other conversations that I have. But as far as what it would look like in conversation, it doesn't ever really look like that. That's just unloading the case, right? Um, I'm going to want to listen and ask and understand where somebody's coming from uh, in in order to try and jump in where they, where they're going to meet me. So if they're, if they're of the mindset that the unborn aren't even human, well, I'm going to go to the science to establish that. And then, and then we'll go from there, right? If they're of the mindset that like, oh yeah, no, I totally get science is important and all that kind of stuff, but which more often than not these days on the university campus, you're going to run into personhood arguments. Whereas the philosophy, um, and those are philosophies of the human person, different views of what it means to be human, materialism, right? The Christian worldview is substance, dualism, body and soul. And then this other crazy thing that I've talked about that Hollywood's championing right now and running strong with, um, then I'm going to jump in there and try to reason back to intrinsic worth, which is grounded. Everything is grounded in the scripture. So that's still my highest authority, right? Um, I think that all truth comes from God. So I'm with you. I think it's objectively true. Absolutely. Um, now, if somebody comes at me with a biblical argument, then we'll talk about that. And that's where we'll jump into the conversation. Um, so I think the goal tonight was to, to expand your resources um, and understand that everything I said tonight is inherently Christian. Um, I think God authored science. So <laughs> all that. But um, but do I, can I make a biblical case? Do I? Yes, I have and I can. And and certainly, certainly it teaches us that. Um, in fact, I, I hear a lot of times people say, well, the Bible doesn't explicitly mention abortion. Um, so we, we infer the pro-life case from the Bible. It's right. It doesn't say the word. Um, but there are passages and, and places we can go. The Imago Dei is a strong argument. Um, certain things written in the in the laws um, in the Old Testament are strong too. So yes, all, yes to what you're saying. And um, <laughs> when I'm in a Christian environment, schools in particular, I usually come here because what they hear are theological arguments. And when I come in, it's like, whoa, right? And that, that just undergirds what they hear and know. Um, but we can go the other way too. So I'm going to ask two more questions, and then if you need to leave after she answers those, you guys are welcome to, because I know we want to try to cut it off at eight each week that we do this. But we can also stay and ask some more questions if you think of anything. Um, So two questions to just kind of wrap it up for those that might need to leave. One, something that we do within our church, anybody that joins our church, we put them into accountability groups. Um, So when you become a member here, you're in an accountability group. There's a lot of consistency in the type of sins that we're confessing and holding each other accountable to. I would imagine for a lady, uh, it would be a daunting task to maybe potentially open up and confess, hey, previously in my life, this happened. God changed my perspective, changed my view. There's a lot of hurt and whatnot that I'm still working through. I would imagine it would take a lot for someone to open up about that. But 
does your ministry, do you personally have any resources in case any of our women ever were confronted with that, talking with someone else, hey, I've, I've experienced this and I'm, I'm grieved over it. I, I realize I don't, need, I don't need you to convince me of what I did. I understand that now I'm still working through the healing process. Does your ministry provide any resources like that or is there any way you could direct us to something that would provide help and comfort and encouragement? Right. Um, we don't, we don't provide that. We are equipping organizations. So when we go out, we're teaching, we're teaching students how to make a case, adults, how to make a case for the pro-life view. Um, but within the pro-life movement, we'll say the larger movement, um, there are incredible resources. Um, I'm trying to think of it. <laughs> Just a few off the top of my head. Cause I, I, y'all, well, I apologize for not having all this in my fingertips. Um, Cradle my heart. Well, Kim Catola is a friend of mine uh, who works here, and she's post-abortive, and her ministry, she's written a wonderful book, um, and her ministry reaches out, and she's a radio show and things like that. Um, yes, she would be an incredible, just a person to talk to that I'm sure would be very open to connecting with anyone here because she's in Peachtree City. She's very close by. Um, there are organizations you can become affiliated through your church that that are you know, that, that can connect with you there, and they're, they're branching out. Um and then just within our Pregnancy Resource Center, um, we have that kind of counseling here, which is, it's incredible. And it gets stronger. The more volunteers and things they have, the better it gets. Um, but I will say, you know, guys, the gospel, the gospel, the gospel is the best resource. That, and we all need the same thing. Um, you know, people ask me all the time, what does what you do have to do with the gospel? I'm like, everything has to do everything with the gospel, Abortion causes an immense amount of pain. Um, no matter where somebody stands on the spectrum and what they believe about it, it hurts people. And so I, I would say not to forget that that intrinsic worth that I argued for is because of who God is and, and, who, and, and who he made us to be. And then we, he went over and above and did what he did. Not just making us like square with him, but adopting, adopting us and making us his. Um, so we need each other to be reminded of that. Yeah, I'll send you some. When I can get home and get in my computer and... Last question, just beyond what we're doing with the Cal Waited Pregnancy Services and beyond just being active politically when election time comes around and being selective in who we choose to to vote for, um, can you tell us a little bit about how your ministry sustains itself financially? Like, Mm -hmm. is there a need for individual support for you personally, for the ministry as a whole? How's that work? And then anything else you can think of that hey, you guys can get involved in, in these type of things to advocate for the other one. Sure. Um, yes. So, yes, Coweta Pregnancy Center, close to my heart. So that's awesome. Um, Life Training Institute, I, I work as a missionary. We're a nonprofit organization. We are funded by generous donors, and, and my salary is paid by donations. Um, and so I have a, a donation team or support team in place that receives monthly newsletters from me when I go out with students. So they get to have some equipping and then hear about what's going on on the road. Um, and that can be found at our website, which I'll send to you as well. Prolifetraining.com. I'll smush it together. No hyphens. Prolifetraining.com. Um, also as a ministry, we have a general fund and we have very generous donors who believe in what we do and have given us very large sums of money to enable us to go and do these trainings in schools around the nation without charging the schools. So our ministry 
it's 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 an interesting line to walk because there's always budget issues as there is in any nonprofit. But we are able to travel and speak and try to make the best use of the funds our ministry has. Um, for example, I have a trip coming up to Michigan. I'll be there for two days. I'm in two consecutive schools back to back, and each of those schools has at least 500 or more students in them who will hear this message, and then I'll hang out in classrooms and answer questions throughout the day in those schools. And LTI will fund me flying there, staying, and flying back um, in the school. Um, doesn't have to pay for it. Uh, so everything's donations that makes what we do possible. Um, so if you're interested in supporting that, you can talk to me or Adam, and I'll send you some more as far as that goes. Um, as far as the pro-life movement in general, um, the political side matters because that's where the laws are going to be written. We're going to get things done. What I do is on the side of hearts and minds. Um, that matters too. And each of you has a sphere of influence where you are. Um, so use the things you learned tonight and continue equipping yourself. That website I'm going to give you, that ProLifeTraining.com, there are articles on that website. You can watch presentations from each of our speakers um, to hear the same bones of what I just did from four different voices other than mine. Um, there is a podcast there you can listen to and an ongoing blog that addresses current events as best as we can keep it updated. Uh, so continue to equip yourself. Uh, there are some books I can give you, too, that are very accessible. that You can read and, and have something to say. Uh, so I would say just being in the same way that you're already listening and looking for opportunities to share your faith, this is just another doorway into that ability. Because, again, this is a battle over what it means to be human. And you can share with someone um, some incredible truths about themselves that are extremely encouraging that lead to gospel conversations using things like trot out the toddler, using things like bringing it back to what is the unborn um, and using that science and philosophy and leading to scripture um, and, and, and you just reminding them who they are, why they matter and that God is real. Even a conversation over the fact that this is objective. That's kind of mind blowing for a lot of people. Um, that, that God is, no, I, like, I really, he's really real. And there's evidence, the evidence for the resurrection, you guys are about to celebrate Easter, is stronger philosophically, scientifically, medically, historically. And of course, what scripture gives us itself. Scripture itself is so just wonderful, even in its lack of detail, because that lends itself to its veracity, right? Um, to show that the resurrection really happened that day. Nothing else anybody's ever given by way of explanation has come close. Um, Are you primarily in public schools, private schools? Primarily private private schools. I speak in a lot of Catholic schools, which are generally about 50-50 as far as um, about 50% of the kids are secular kids there for the education. Um, a lot of Protestant schools who will have me come in. And most recently, I've been in some public schools in our area through FCA because of an athletic background. And so I take those opportunities as they come to. Um, and then summertime is camps, so I get kids from all over the place. I love hearing the stories from the Southern California public school kids. <laughs> it breaks my heart, but it's always interesting. Okay. Well, thank you so much for coming. We definitely appreciate it. And Thanks for um, having me. Megan, probably stick around just for a little bit if anybody sure. else has any other questions. Um, I'd love for you all to get a chance to spend some time with her if you'd like to and ask some more things. That's so pretty good. God, we thank you so much for the chance to come together tonight and to just some, hear some new and fresh ways that we can be advocates for the unborn, God. We hear the stats, we know the numbers, um, and, and God, help us to see that um, it, it is a big battle, it's a big war, but we can be a part of, of winning that as we communicate truth to those around us. I pray that you would continue to help the ministries around us to thrive, um, particularly 
right here in our own area with the Calvary Pregnancy Services, continue to give us a desire to, to serve and to love and to, to work with them, to partner with them in the ministry that they have. God, help us to also recognize that these numbers of abortions are also a representative of men and women who have contributed to making decisions. And God, you may lead us into contact with those people as we are about the gospel and, and sharing that with others that um, we can be instruments of healing too for those that, that have been a part of this. Um, and God, give us wisdom in knowing how to communicate the gospel, um, the forgiveness that you offer as well with those that we may come in contact with. So God, prepare us for whatever ministries you may give us in the near future um, because of tonight and the ways that you've equipped us. Pray for Megan that you would continue to allow her ministry to, uh, to be fruitful and that she would continue to provide financially so that she can do what you called her to do. God, we just thank you again for the chance to come together tonight and to hear and to discuss and be challenged. In Jesus' name, I pray. Thank you for listening to this evening's discussion. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that is www.sovhope.org.